0: Welcome to Wealth Well Done. Together, we'll cover a wide range of important topics surrounding money and the impact it has on our lives. From the sophisticated and highly valuable planning techniques of the ultra wealthy to the commonly underutilized biblical teachings. Together, we'll work to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well. Here's your host, Eric Scoville. Welcome to the 15th episode of the Wealth Well Done podcast. I'm your host, Eric Scoville. Um, In this podcast, we go after the tactical, practical, and spiritual advice to help you do your wealth well done. Uh, Last week, we did an overview on estate planning. We dug into some of the intricacies of of estate planning, both at a uh, kind of lower level and and as we get into even the the higher level of sophistication there. Um, But today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Chuck Day to the show. Um, Chuck Day is a um, right now he's he's with with IJM the International Justice Mission. But Chuck has uh, got a law degree from Drake University. He has spent looks like twenty five plus years in philanthropy, um, and so um, we're going to do a two part show with Chuck. And today we are going to really dig into the mentality of the giver and, and understanding um, some of the, some of the ways that they. Approach giving uh, at the highest level, and uh, get some of your advice to help help us do that. Um, you know, for anyone, whether these are foundations that are experienced or getting started, or, or even on the individual level, um, for people who are trying to um, take their giving to the next level. So, Chaka uh, appreciate you being on here today. Hey, Eric, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So, what I want to do first is, um, I guess, will you will you give a, a brief? bio background, uh, so that way listeners understand the kind of credibility that you're bringing to the table here. Yeah, thanks. So um, I tell people I'm a recovering lawyer by trade. <laughs>
1: um, I practiced law in Chicago for about a decade, doing everything from trial work to general practice to uh, tax planning and things like that. And then for a quality of life Improvement. I moved from private practice into the nonprofit world about 25 years ago and have spent almost all that time doing an aspect of charitable giving that's called planned giving, uh, in which I work with individuals and families and help them strategically plan their giving, not only to my organization, but to all the organizations they support show them how to maximize every dollar that they want to give, help them select the organizations that they want to support based on their passions uh, and their interests in the world, help them engage their children and grandchildren Mm -hmm. in charitable giving so that we achieve some generational uh, passing of the great gift of generosity. Um, So basically I'm in the stewardship business. I want to make every dollar scream and I want my families and my individuals to see the maximum impact of their charitable giving.
0: I love it. I love it. Thank you. Okay, um, where I want to go first because I know you're you've done you've worked for organizations that focus domestically, specifically out east, um, yep. and then you've done a lot internationally and a lot with yep. the the poorest of the poor internationally. So yep. um, when we look at when we look at the the landscape there, what do Americans need to understand about life in the third world country? Wow. Um, <laughs> a question. Yeah.
1: It's very different. And I think that we make a mistake when we take our American mindset into trying to address issues in the developing world where they're tugging on our heart and we want to do something. But in order to achieve the best impact, we have to of leave some of our American mindset behind and really immerse ourselves in the cultures and the problems of the developing world uh, that are very different than what we deal with here in the United States. Um, There have been some wonderful books written on some extremely well-intentioned Americans uh, who have gone into the developing world with great generosity and completely inadvertently done an enormous amount of harm. Um, and so we want to make sure that we, you know, we engage in these things because we want to make a positive impact. So we want to make sure that, you know, first of all, we do no harm. And secondly, that we get in there and we really understand the problem from the perspective of the people who live in that country, interact at a very deep level with people who understand the culture, who are from that culture and who know from their own life experience, what is the best way to approach this problem and therefore take our American capabilities and utilize them within the culture where they're going to have the greatest impact and the greatest help.
0: What, what type of harm have you seen? What, what's prevalent on the harm that's done by well-intentioned givers? Yeah, uh, this was a, a first hand
1: experience. I was in Nicaragua uh, several years ago And I was standing in the town square uh, of a small village, and a dump truck pulled into the middle of the town square and downloaded several hundred pairs of shoes. As the entire town stood around and watched this dump truck just unload all these shoes in the town square, and as I found out that these shoes had been meticulously collected over a long period of time by several churches in the United States, because they had heard that Nicaraguans needed shoes. So they gathered up every com- you know conceivable pair of shoes that you can imagine and put them in a container and sent them overseas. And the dump truck brought them to this village and dumped them right in the middle of the town square. Um, uh, the
0: first- how arrogant does that seem? Nope. <laughs> well,
1: The first thing that happens is that that immediately put out of business every cobbler, shoe repair, and shoe manufacturer within conceivable distance. Sure. Um, And so within a year or so, when the shoes that were donated all wore out and people needed new shoes or needed shoes repaired, there was no one available to do any of the repairs because our generosity, as well-intentioned as it was, had disrupted the ecosystem of that town to the degree that there was nobody left to repair any shoes,
0: yeah okay which and and re- shoe repair seems in America like most people don't get their shoes repaired, most people just go yeah. buy new shoes, but in other parts of the world that's probably a lot more common absolutely okay okay um, for when you when you look at the dollars and, and the impact that they can have. Um, I know IJM has the, uh, the statistic that, you know, most of the world lives on less than, was it a dollar 90 a day? Um, and so we look at, you know, inside a lot of church plants, um, you know, locally, if you want to, if you want to plant a church in America, you're talking at least probably 30 to 50 grand, if not you know, well into the six figures to to successfully plant a church, whereas you could plant a church internationally for three thousand dollars, sometimes even less. Fraction, yep. yeah, yeah. And so, when you look at the the impact of dollars, um, you know, there's no doubt that dollars go further in other parts of the world. Um, but I guess can you speak to what you have seen because you, you've been on both sides of this, you know, domestically and abroad, of uh, the impact of dollars here versus versus internationally? Yeah. I think that there's
1: there's two things that I've learned in the nonprofit world, whether it was domestically or particularly internationally. If it's not sustainable, don't do it. Hmm. Okay. Um, Will you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. I think, particularly in the developing world, the people, particularly the poor people who live in those cultures, have gotten very used to well-meaning Americans showing up trying something for a few years, getting frustrated, and leaving. Okay. And one of the things that has to happen is that before we go into any situation, particularly in the developing world, we need to make sure that our business model is sustainable, meaning that we can go in and invest those resources and that we're going to be there for the long haul, Uh, that we have very well-measured, uh, means of evaluating our success and that we're measuring those means along the way and that we're actually having a sustainable impact in the area that we're trying to achieve. Um, that not only impacts the culture in which we're working positively, uh, but it also helps reinforce the fact that we really can go there and make a difference um, and not just show up, try something and leave. So sustainability is a key element of any aspect of generosity, whether it's here or overseas. The other thing I've seen, and this is, I think, applicable in both cultures, a hand-up is way better than a handout. Yeah. Um, A hand-up is not only more effective and more sustainable in terms of the lives of the people you're dealing with, it affirms human dignity. Uh, it utilizes the giftedness that all people have. Uh, it engages local involvement and local investment. Um, and, you know, that ultimately is going to determine whether or not you have long-term success or not. So, uh, short-term, I mean, if, if there's a disaster, if there's a tsunami, then a handout for survivor purposes is fine. But anything more uh, engaging in the long term than that, a lot of thought has to be put into is this a hand up or a handout and a hand up
0: uh, is immeasurably more effective than a handout? Okay how would you man I may not completely agree with you there. Um, how would you recommend that some again, I think most of these questions here. I'm going to focus on whether it could be the foundations or individual donors here, yeah. uh, not so much organizational giving. Um, so, how would you recommend that one of those two um, parties decides to balance their giving between local issues? Because there's there's poverty and and there is there's hunger, starvation issues. There's, there's all sorts of issues locally that you know n- you know family. Um, improving family dynamics and other things that you can do locally and, you know, right around the corner. And then you have this big need abroad. How do you recommend someone balance their giving? Yeah. I think that I encourage families to look at their charitable giving in
1: much of the same way that they look at their for-profit investing. Uh, When we invest Uh, for the long-term or for the short-term, we tend to have different buckets of investments. We've got equities, we've got bonds, we've got different things that we invest in uh, to achieve short-term and long-term results. I really encourage families and individuals to sit down and determine what are their philanthropic buckets? What are the things that makes them laugh and what are the things that makes them cry? Hmm. Where is somebody like God tugging on their heart? Uh, Locally, Regionally, nationally, and internationally, yeah, and create a bucket for each one of those things, and allocating resources to each one, and then applying the same due diligence to those buckets for their philanthropic giving the same way they would do for their uh, for-profit investing. Okay, uh, um, that's a good way to establish and have a plan to carry that out.
0: Very good, thank you. Okay. Um, Next question here, uh, obviously the size of donation is a factor on, on this one because not everyone's going to mm-hmm. get the same type of treatment, but what are the differences between the way good foundations partner with an organization, whether whether it's IJM or with a problem, uh, the way a good foundation partners with it compared to like the, the average individual donor?
1: I think first, you know, a foundation is going to have some giving guidelines that have already been established by the foundation. And, you know, that may help them allocate, you know, really laser focus on which organizations they want to work with. Assuming the foundation has the type of resources that you need to make a foundation, you know, sustainable in its own. Um, A a foundation can sit down with an organization and with their leadership and really walk through what are the long-term goals of the charity that they want to work with. And they can establish a long-term plan of partnership uh, based on what the foundation wants to achieve, what the charity wants to achieve. Um, The foundation has the ability to, uh, perhaps more than individuals, really go and see the -the boots-on-the-ground effort that the charity is trying to achieve. And I can't encourage that enough, either for a foundation giver or for an individual giver. The more depth that you can achieve in seeing what the organization does, what they do well, what are the challenges that they're facing, whether that is the the local food pantry or an organization over in India that's like IJM is trying to alleviate slavery and human trafficking. The more up close and personal you can see exactly what's going on, the better and more focused your giving is going to be. And the better partnership you can achieve with the charity
0: that you're working with. Okay. All right. Um, next, it's got a two part question here, and I'm, I'm thinking about the the characteristics of great foundations. Um, mm-hmm. What are what are some of those characteristics that a whether uh, w- that an individual should adopt? That an individual donor should try to adopt. Again, you know, size of giving and resources might be a, an issue there, but the characteristics of great foundations that an individual donor should adopt, and then the second one's going to be that uh, someone who's setting up a new foundation or just kind of has a foundation that's, that's maybe stuck somewhere in an in, in average and a little bit of the muck and not, not really making an impact that they would want to adopt.
1: Yeah. One of the things that, um, one of the goals I try to have with both the individuals I work with and the families is that this should be fun giving should be a source of joy. Giving should be something that the family or the individual looks forward to doing. Um, Addressing a big problem in the world and having impact should be something that provides a lot of fulfillment and a lot of joy. And like most things in life, when you've got a strategic plan in place, you're going to have better results. You're going to have more joy. and you're going to continue to want to do the giving that you kind of set yourself up to do. So the first thing with individuals or with a married couple, before you do anything, sit down together. And if you're from a faith background, I really encourage families to pray through this, is really determine what is the strategic path or the plan that you want to put in place and put it in writing. Like a business plan. What are we trying to achieve here? What are the resources that we have available? How are we going to measure our success? How are we going to have funnel on the way? And that kind of plan allows you to be proactive in your giving. And being proactive in your giving gives you the joy of saying yes to the things you want to say yes to and no to the things you don't want to participate in. And, um, I find that being reactive in giving, where you're just sort of fending off people who are asking you for money, it's not very much fun.
0: Um, it's not. There, are, there are so many people who get the donor fatigue when when they feel like they, they, they it takes an emotional toll to say no.
1: But sure. if you have
0: a clear cut thing that's, that no one's going to argue or no one's going to look down on you when you say, and I ask you, hey Chuck, will you donate to my my kids' little league team or will you donate to to this organization here you know uh, uh, take a big brother big sister or a uh, boy scouts type thing and and sure. you say well you know hey i'm, I'm sorry I, all of the you know my focus is on these areas here these right. uh, the development or you know, the spreading of the gospel in in different places like that and unless the organization lines up with that then that's not where i give it's still a wonderful organization i wish you the very best yeah like you, and I, and i mean you don't have to be uh Super literal about this, you
1: can still have sort of a a small fund that you use for spontaneous small gifts. But the vast majority of of what you want to do philanthropically should be very strategically thought out and set down in writing. Um, Eric, for exactly the reason you reasons you mentioned, um, you want to say yes to the things that fit those guidelines, and you want to say no to everything else. Um, And any anyone who is in the nonprofit world is going to respect. Your uh, decision not to support them because their cause is simply not within the guidelines that you've established for your giving,
0: right? Um, Man, that takes so much pressure off of off of the donor at that yeah. point. There's there's a lot yeah. of freedom and, and no,
1: absolutely, and that goes back to the fun and the joy. Um, you don't want the process of saying no uh, to sap. The joy and the fulfillment that you're getting on the things that you're saying yes to. Okay. So, um, for anybody who's looking at establishing a foundation, um, I guess the first thing I would always ask that family is why? What is it about a foundation structure that is appealing to you? Um, there are a couple different formats or structures that you can use a donor advised fund for many families. Will achieve ninety nine percent of what a family foundation will achieve. Um, Many families I work with have both functions; they have both a foundation and a donor advised fund. Um, And I'm not going to go into the deep weeds of of both of those structures. Yeah, I'll do that on a later show. But they have, but they both have wonderful advantages. Uh, They can work in tandem together. Um, You know, Eric, I know as you've seen, and, and there's certainly a truism in the philanthropic world, that if uh, a family sets up a foundation, probably by the second or third generation, um, either the foundation assets are no longer in place or the original giving intent of grandma and grandpa has been lost along the way. Um, And so you wanna make sure that when you set up a foundation and if your goal is to make sure that your kids and grandkids are engaged, make sure that that's flexible enough to adapt to the interests and passions of your kids and grandkids because if you saddle them with a foundation that can only give to the things that you care about, um, you're going to defeat one of the purposes of your foundation.
0: Yeah, man, that is such a perfect segue into the next round of questions I have for you. Um, Listeners, Chuck did not know that, by the way. Uh, (laughs) Exactly where we're going next here is is the generational transition, and yeah. so uh, you know, I want to I want to lean in more. We've I make a I make a decent deal about this uh, in the in, in the terms of the show from what happens to to G three and G four, and so for those who listen, that generation one g- generation one is is the you know I'm talking about the person who's created the wealth. Generation two would be their children. Their children have grown up. They've probably been um, they have maybe been somewhat of a casualty from the the effort that took uh, to create the wealth, and often the, that generation has seen the hard work that's gone into it, and they have also uh, paid the price because of, of less involvement, maybe from their parents, um, just with uh, the hardship that went into creating the wealth in the first place. Generation three, fairly far removed from from it, but they still probably have some relationship with with the original creators of the wealth, and, and they're, they're raised by, Kids or by their parents have, were the kids of that. They've seen that generation four. Most people don't know their their great grandmother's maiden name, and and that's just that's where we're at here. So generation four typically has very very little connection to the wealth scene. How that, um, what type of work that took to create that, and that's where you see a lot of these problems and these families fall apart. So I, I often say, you know, if preparation isn't made for you know for for really handing off that wealth well then you're better off giving it all away than handing it down to heirs because of the problems that you're going to create further on. So can you dig into a little bit of like best practices here, what you've seen sure. with these families of how they handle this multi-generation um, you know, wealth transition and, and do it successfully? Yeah. Um,
1: almost all the families that I work with or I'm introduced to these days um, have kids who are under the age of 12. And this is a situation where mom and dad are very generous. Uh, They've been successful. Uh, They support my organization and several other organizations. And I'm helping them with some of those decisions and how to maximize their giving. And one of the first things we work on is engaging their children as young as possible into the giving process. And this is where mom and dad have got to be strategic and wise enough to understand that their children are going to have very different passions for their generosity than mom and dad do. And that's okay. Matter of fact, that's really good because um, parents take great joy in passing the gift of generosity onto their kids. And it has been statistically shown that people who are generous are much less subject to materialism, much less subject to depression, are far healthier emotionally and physically. And so when mom and dad can pass on the gift of generosity to their kids, they are physically, emotionally, psychologically, and even spiritually tremendously benefiting their kids. Right. So I urge my uh, the folks I work with to be very deliberate, very strategic in engaging their children in the things that those kids are passionate about. And you can start as early as a kid who's in first grade. And you can sit down with that first grader and say, what are the things that make you laugh? And what are the things that make you cry? And the things that may make them laugh might be sports or it might be animals. The things that make them cry might be the bully at school that's terrorizing everybody in their class. And so mom and dad can sit down after they Learn those, you know, maybe new things from their first grader and say, what are the causes in our area that my first grader can experience that are addressing the things that they love and the things that may be harming them? Yeah. And so mom and dad can make a gift to the local anti bullying society in the name of their child, either through the foundation or the donor advised fund or, or put the name of the child on the check. So that when the thank you letter comes, it comes to the child and -hmm. the child gets to open that letter or the invitation to the annual dinner where the child can see the impact of their giving. And over the years, obviously those interests and things are going to change, but you, you are building up a lifetime of life experience where the child sees the connection between generosity and life change. And that is going to condition that child's heart. For the rest of their life, and it's going to position them to properly manage whatever responsibilities they might have from the foundation or from the giving that the parents pass from one generation to the next. Okay,
0: all right, that, that is that is so good. <laughs> um, as, as wealth increases, where what do you see happen to the the level of giving? Do, do you find people you know, when when someone's going from a uh, a let us take like a kind of a, a low six figure type income, and then when someone it, when you're talking with people who have who get into then mid sevens and 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 then the eight figure, let's just say in, in those kind of ranges, like how do you see either the clenches around money or the the level of giving does it, does it change by the the amount of um, income that someone makes? It can. Um, I
1: more frequently see that whatever patterns they picked up from their family of origin are going to follow them along on their wealth journey. Uh, If they grew up in a family in which their parents uh, were generous and um, treated wealth as a tool and not something that uh, where mom and dad controlled the money, but the money didn't control them, uh, kids tend to carry that along with them. Um, And it doesn't matter if they're earning $100,000 or $100 million a year. That's going to influence their attitude towards money much more so than the amount of money they actually are making. Um, I have worked with families that had tens of millions of dollars uh, ready and able to give. And their greatest fear was that they were going to end up in a cardboard box under the viaduct um, because they, money was still controlling them. Yeah. So, um, the emotional attitudes and the, and the things from our life experience that we carry into our wealth frequently have much more to do with, um, how willing we are to let go of those things than the actual
0: amount of money we have. Okay. I, I, I I think it's absolutely true. The, when you look at the, as someone increases their giving, they find peace they find more peace as, as someone yep. increases their giving they're going to find more peace financially they're going to find more fruit in their lives um that way and so yeah that that that, that completely ties into that we actually our guest um from two weeks ago we we got into the family of origin as well around yep. money, so you're absolutely right there back to the generational piece for a minute yep. if you have so let's let's go out to i'm a 70 year old um and i now have um i've got grandkids who are who are getting you know they're they're into their you know mid-adolescence and you know they're going to be they're going to be having kids of their own before long um how do i try to to tee up my foundation or or, or like do i how much does that need to go do i need to respect and go through my kids as their parents. Um, how, do, how do I try to navigate that to, to, again, try to back to what you're saying of instilling those those values of generosity at a young age? How are you seeing yeah. people in that generation uh, make that type of impact? Yeah, you know, a lot of that
1: depends on how much work the 70-year-old put into training their own children. Sure. What is, you know, what is the culture of generosity that they
0: created in their own children who now have their own now have the grandchildren let's assume somewhere in the middle they, they did a little okay. bit but but certainly there was there was a lot of <laughs> excuse me a lot of work left undone yeah
1: uh and that's pretty much the common situation because uh the children were busy establishing their own lives building you know their own careers uh as we know parenting is 24 7 on top of work and um the work in terms of engaging those children probably is partway there. Yeah. So this is where the 70-year-old needs to sit down with his kids individually and say, I don't want to interfere in the parenting that you're doing with my grandkids. But if you are open to this, I would love to engage my grandchildren, your children, in the process of developing generosity. And what I'd like to do is sit down with you as parents and work out a strategic plan and how we are going to engage these grandchildren. And while I'm still alive as a 70-year-old, what can I do in the lives of those grandchildren? And as a 70-year-old, I probably have a lot more freedom at this point to do things. Um, We may lay out a schedule of family trips. Uh, where, as the grandparent, I am going to take my children and grandchildren and show them what different organizations are doing around the world, locally, domestically, internationally, and in a very thoughtful, very strategic manner, open the eyes of my grandchildren to what the world is, how fortunate they are to be growing up here, And give them an introduction as to how to be effective locally, nationally, and internationally, and do it in a very deliberate and very strategic and loving and thoughtful manner. Okay. Uh, With the full cooperation of the parents, uh, engage the parents, too, uh, with as much time as they may have. Um, And maybe it's all three generations going on a trip. Uh, Utilize the summers. Um but do it in a very well thought out manner, taking into account the interests of the grandparents, the parents,
0: and the children. okay that's that's great. thank you, Chuck. One last question before we wrap it up here. Um, for for people who are newer to giving and or you know they're they maybe they're newer to due diligence in their giving as well. Um, you and I talked a little bit um, before about Charity Navigator and and some yeah. of the other sites that that are useful tools to help to help people, but don't necessarily tell the whole picture. Um, yeah. And so you know, the, the example l- locally here is Midwest Food Bank. Now they're a they're an international organization. They're mm-hmm. phenomenal, but they have they have five paid employees. Everyone else yeah. does you know everything else is volunteer. And so they you know they get a ninety nine percent on on that. How do you recommend a donor use a resource like Charity Navigator to to, to help them gain a bit better picture of, of the organization and to decide if they should or shouldn't give. Sure. Um,
1: I think there's two questions that a donor really wants to ask. The first question they're going to ask is what kind of impact is this organization achieving? Because we give to achieve impact. What is the problem that this organization is addressing Uh, what is their methodology, what is their mission to address it, and are they actually having success? Are they actually achieving the results that we want to achieve? So you're looking at the first issue is impact. The second issue is, how does this organization handle a dollar? And Charity Navigator will tell you, and other organizations will tell you, how they handle a dollar. Um, They may attempt, and I've been watching charity navigator for for a long time now they do attempt to measure impact um but you know if you have an organization that is uh like you mentioned the local food bank that's got five employees and utilizes you know dozens of volunteers they're going to be a very lean very uh They're going to utilize a dollar in a way that's going to give them four stars on Charity Navigator, uh, almost regardless of their impact. Um, There are other organizations that are heavily uh, required to use paid employees simply because of the complexity of what they're doing. Uh, The more money that you're having in employees, uh, you have to dig down a little deeper and determine are these going into uh, programs are they going t- into things that are achieving the success of the organization or are they going to unnecessary overhead yeah so you got to do a little bit of more due diligence than just pulling onto the charity navigator website um, and seeing how many stars they got um, this is where if you identify an organization that you are interested in you sit down with their representative and maybe with their executive leadership, depending on how much you know involvement you want to have, and you dig down into, number one, what is the impact that the organization is achieving and how are they measuring it? And number two, you drill down into the financials and you look at them in the same way that you would do for a for-profit investment, and you get a much more uh, complete view of how that
0: organization handles a dollar, and are you comfortable with that? Okay, very good. Thank you, Chuck. Um, yeah. We're going to we're gonna wrap it up here and we are going to pick up uh, in the next episode with you again where we're going to dig in uh, with Chuck on human trafficking and the work that uh, his organization, IJM, is doing about it. So um, thank you for listening. Hope you have a great week and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for having me, Eric. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you again for listening to Wealth Well Done. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player, and together we'll continue to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well.